Okay, I'll just read out your bio, and then uh, this is from a few years ago, so uh, so I'll just ask you to update it. If you, okay. Okay. So, born in Manchester, Tim Parks grew up in London and studied at Cambridge and Harvard. In 1981, he moved to Italy, where he has lived ever since. He is the author of novels, nonfiction, and essays, including Europa, a Cleaver, A Season with Verona, Teach Us to Sit Still, and Italian Ways. He's one of the Somerset Mom, Betty Trask, and Llewellyn Rice Award, and being shortlisted for the Booker Prize. He lectures on literary translation in Milan, writes for publications such as The New Yorker and The New York Review of Books, and has many translations from the Italian, including works by Morovia, Calvino, Calasso, Dabucci, and Machiavelli. Now, this was this bio appears in where I'm reading from, The Changing World of Books. Perhaps, Tim, you could update us on what you've been doing. Do, the read, do people really need to know all the... I mean, more of the same to a large degree. But there's, better, another, better, there's, right? there's another collection like where I'm reading from, short pieces about, about reading and writing. There was a book on walking across Italy following Garibaldi. Which was uh, which was more fun. There are a couple of novels, but more or less, yeah, more of the same. And I'm still living in Milan. Very good. Welcome again to the Bibliophile. Well, thank you, thank you, Nigel, for inviting me. So, uh, what I'm hoping to do as as part of the the podcast, what I've been doing is interviewing best practitioners uh, in all sorts of different roles as they are connected to the book. And I'm uh, keen to talk to you about uh, not just the role, but how to read well. Uh, And I want to riff off, to some extent, Mortimer Adler's book back in the 50s of that same name. It was updated in the 70s. But before I do that, I'll just give you what I do and see how that jives with what you do. So what I do is I underline everything that I love for its beauty, its cleverness, its wisdom, uh, and also everything I don't understand, everything I disagree with, everything that expresses uh, uh, what I believe in in a, a notably fine way. That's what I do in preparation for a lot of these interviews. What do you do? What do you think reading well involves? Well, you know, Nigel, we've got some time to talk here. So I'd, I'd like to leave an exact description of what I do for a little later, because I'd like to, to sort of frame this discussion, I think, in a way that, that will help us like, understand why we do the things we do. So, you know, I'd like to really start by asking, you know, how far a book exists if it's not being read, not as a provocation, as a genuine question. I mean, we know there's this there's this famous book called the Boynich Manuscript, which dates back to the 15th century. It appears to be a book. It's in a manuscript form. It's written with European lettering. 
but it's a language that nobody's managed to crack. Okay. So lots of people have claimed they've cracked it and then they never have cracked it. So, he, you know, we have a book, but nobody can read it. Or maybe it's not even a book. Maybe maybe it's a joke. Okay. But but all I'm saying is until somebody actually engages with that material, it's hard to say how far that exists as a book or, or just as a, a, a bunch of pages with signs on. Now, obviously, the, the next reflection from there is if you don't understand the language, none of the other books that are not in your language are, are really books for you. Okay. So... Like the first thing about, about reading is, is language competence, right? And we all know that the language that we have is a little bit different from the language that other people have. I mean, you know, you're from Canada, I'm from the UK, somebody's from Australia, somebody's 10 years old, somebody's 20 years old, somebody's 80 years old. They all have different Englishes. The words come to them in different ways. Some people are offended when they see uh, a woman of 22 described as a girl, some people can't understand why the other people are offended. So like when a book comes into existence, and, and, and I really want to stress that I don't think, like, how can a book exist except as an experience of reading? When the book comes into existence, it comes into existence in different ways for different people, right? And some of those ways are going to be, as it were, more authoritative because they know the language better. For example, if I read a book in German, which I can just about do, yeah. it's not going to be the same as a German reading a book that the words might have a sort of coded meaning for me, but they're not locked into feelings from childhood. They're not locked into what my mummy said to me when I was 10. So I'm just saying like all of us bring completely different experiences to the book. Yeah. And clearly you can see that the more experience you can bring to a book, or it's going to come alive. For example, you know, why do we have children's books and why do children move on from one kind of book to another kind of book as they get older? Because they have more experience to bring to it, because things that in the past they found interesting now seem to them ridiculous. Or at least let's hope that happens. You know, a lot of people today seem to end up still reading children's books. Uh, yeah, adults, yeah. Very late, very late on. You know, you can easily extend this. For example, if I if I read Shakespeare uh, and I don't know absolutely anything about uh, the 16th and 17th centuries, and I don't know anything about the theatre or the theatre of that time, or I don't know anything about King Henry the Fourth, or you know. Uh, it's going to be a different book for me. So I think one of one of the things we have to we have to, to say is that every time a, a person meets a book, where that person is, that's what I meant by this title, where where I'm reading from. Yeah. I'm reading from here with this baggage of information, with this cultural background. You know, I'm before the millenniums. I'm I'm before you know me too and so being super sensitive about every kind. You know. I'm reading from before that. And, and the book I read that comes to life when I read is different from the book I read, the book, for example, my daughter reads. And the interesting thing there is that when we talk about the book, me and my daughter, it's a kind of neutral ground where we can also discover, you know, what, are dif what different positions we're reading from. You know, I'm here and you're there and you see it that way and I see it this way. So a lot of this book 
uh, was precisely about that. So if I've set up that frame, I can now talk <laughs> about... You can the, talk some more, you mean. Right, but for example, for example, I'm just reviewing for the London Review of Books a uh, book written in the 1940s by a Spanish writer, Camilo José Cela, who won the Nobel Prize in 1989, but the particular book I'm reviewing was published in 1951. So, like, as I'm coming to this book and I'm going to review it for a serious paper, I'm aware that, you know, I've really got to catch up a bit, a little bit on the context. I've got to remember, you know, what was going on, the Civil War just before, what was Sailor's position in the Civil War. I'm not saying everybody should do this when they read a book. Saying that I know that if I know these things, the book will mean more for me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, we can all go to a show without bothering to check. Like, you know, we can go to the we can go to the Empire Strikes Back without having watched Star Wars. But if we have watched Star Wars, maybe the Empire Strikes Back will have a couple of a couple of other emotions that that will not. So, you know. Creating the place where you're reading from and, 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 and feeling that you're equipped to read a book is not a bad idea. There's then another whole, whole way I have of, of approaching book. I mean, like you, I will underline things that, that seem curious or, or interesting to me. But what I've learned to do over the years, what I found is a really good way in, particularly to novels, but also biographies, is to keep a very close attention to the uh, system of values in the book. I mean, how, what do I mean by that? In, in most conversations and in most narratives, there will be certain, certain points of the compass in terms of value. I mean, good and evil is one obvious one. Winning and losing is another obvious one, like power or no power, okay? Belonging or not belonging is another one. Independence, freedom, courage, or the opposite. Imprisonment, trapped, uh, cowardice, whatever, on, on the other side. So what I'll be doing is I'll be, I'll be looking like which of these value structures are really dominant in this book. Like, what is the narrative really about? Is it about being free? Is it about being good? Is it about winning? Most American narratives are basically about winning, which are then carefully disguised as being about being good. So, I mean, in, an, in a classic American narrative, the hero has to win, and in order to really win, he has to seem good, because if he wins being bad, we don't want to know about it. Okay. If he fails, he fails because he was good, and, and evil is won in this book in some particular way. That's a, you know, there's a click, classic Alice Munro. You know, in, in Alice Munro's books, all the characters are seen in terms of winning and losing, and they're usually losing slightly because they're not coarse enough, they're not unpleasant enough, to be winning okay how does that help you read because you you start to get attuned you just start to get attuned to the kind of imagery being used for example take the really showy author like the author who's flashing his ability to make splendid sentences alliterate uh, clever metaphors i mean you know joyce is the obvious but there are other writers who try very hard to be clever. Salman Rushdie is one of them. Muriel Sparks, another one. Funny enough, Alice Munro is another writer who loves to be clever. And usually, usually when you start to see that, you can expect that 
the, the narratives inside the book will largely be about winning and losing. You can start to see that. Not always. Based on how clever they're trying to be, you can well, tell. What I, mean is, what I mean is this. The writer generally positions himself towards the reader, right? Writing and reading is a, is a conversation between people. Yes. Yeah. Anybody who writes a book, in the way they write that book, is positioning themselves towards the reader. Like, when you read mm. Joyce, you can understand that Joyce wants you to be on his knee, on your knees, right? He's grandstanding to some extent. He's grandstanding. Well, he's remember, also trying to, he's trying to give the scholars stuff to noodle over. Right, right. Whatever. And when you're yeah. giving stuff, when you're giving scholars puzzles to solve, who's the boss? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a hierarchical. You've rhythm. got the answers. When Joyce got his friends to read bits of his books, particularly the later books, if they understood it too easily, he went back and made it more difficult. Right. Now, you look at, you look at the narratives in Joyce. Look at the narrative, for example, at the beginning of Ulysses, Stephen and Buck Mulligan and stuff. Stephen is just constantly upset because he feels humiliated. He feels he's being treated as a servant. He feels his job is a crap job. When he starts discussing things in a lesson with his students, he discusses a pyrrhic victory, like when you win and lose at the same time, right? Yeah. He's all about winning and losing, Stephen, and he feels that he's losing, and he's and he loves to be terribly clever so he can beat the Englishman. What there's an Englishman in the book, and and Stephen invents that very clever description of Irish literature so that he will seem more clever than the Englishman. You know, well, you yeah. get somebody on the other hand, like Bloom. In Ulysses, who's just he's completely happy to be a loser. Well, this is it. A, like, is he happy to be a cuckold? I don't know if he's happy. His wife's his wife's going to be shagging somebody else. No, I know, but that's not. He's not happy about that. Yeah, he's not happy about it, but he does all kinds of things for her, doesn't he? He picks up a book from the yes, floor. He, does. he looks whipped. after her. He's he takes her his yeah. tea. He spends most of the day thinking about other stuff. Yeah. You know, like me, I'd be going out of my mind, but there's a great bit where Bloom sits on the lavatory reading, mm. reading a story by somebody who's managed to sell his story to the local paper for a price of £10 or something. And Bloom's thinking, huh, I could do that. I could, I could write a story and get £10. And Joyce, well, one of Joyce's great sentences, I think, Bloom, he says, Bloom envied kindly. Envy kindly mm -hmm. this, this man who did. so you know you can see that there's for, for example Bloom is really happy when his wife asks him what metempsychosis means. Do you remember? Because okay, she's gonna she's the one who's popular, she's gonna have sex today with her with her opera man. But the person who knows what metempsychosis means. Yeah, that's right. So, it's so like, again, it's so again, what? You're saying that... You're losing, but you're winning at the same no, time. That, yes, but to, to what you're saying is that you've, you know, identified this theme, this competitive theme, let's say, and that uh, that helps you to understand and appreciate the work that much better. Is that is that what you're saying is, is, as a good reader? I'm not saying that's a good reader. I'm just saying that's where I'm reading from. That's the okay. kind of reader I am. Right. I want to get a grip on the book. I want to understand how the writer 
is positioning self with regard to me. And there's a relationship between the style, the way he positions himself, and the kind of stories he's telling me. Like, you know, we could go to another author who does things like, like, okay, let's take another author everybody will have read a bit of. Let's take Dickens. Dickens is also quite a showy writer. I mean, he's very full of fun. But he's never trying to be cleverer than you are. He's trying to draw you in. He he never writes something that you won't understand. No, he's not talking. He's not. Yeah, he's not trying to show how smart he is. No, he's inviting you into his community, and he says, you know, the readers are my family. I love my readers. I mean, Joyce would never have said that kind of thing. And the stories in Dickens are all stories about belonging or not belonging. You know, what's the big story about Dickens? Dickens was kicked out of his family when he was 10 years old. Yeah. He had to go and work for a year in, in a, a distant relative. Eatery, yeah. A distant relative's factory. Blacken, and what's, blacken, the other, yeah. what's the other big story in Dickens' life? After his wife has had 10 children, he chucks her out of the family. Yes. Isn't well, no, it? and he has an, he's having an affair, of course. And he's having an affair. But basically, worst of all, he chucks her out of the family. And what does he do to his children when he gets irritated with them? He sends them to Australia or to India. Okay. If you look at a story like David Copperfield, the whole of David Copperfield is about being in a family or out of a family, in a group or out of a group. I mean, constantly, absolutely constantly, David gets kicked out of a group and then gets pulled back into another group and so on and so forth. So he has this writing, which is incredibly, it's like a warm embrace. If you look at, there are hundreds of Dickens societies. Right. People get together because they like belonging with Dickens. You know, everything is about belonging. Um, You don't get that even with some very successful authors because they don't create that warmness. Like, you're not going to get a John Kurtzier associations of people who love to get friendly together around the work of John Kurtzier because that's not what he does. No. Or indeed Tim Parks, for that matter. So, you know, one of the things I'm constantly doing is trying to understand, is this writer about about frightening me or about encouraging me? Is this writer about, you know? Yes. And then I'll start underlining stuff that goes in that direction, you know? Yeah, but you don't know that until you've read the book, though. Well, you start reading the book and you start thinking, where is this guy? So you're, you are very interested in how the author is behaving towards you with what... Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, do you know Thomas Hardy's writing? Yeah, I do, yeah. Every time you open a Thomas Hardy book, you know that a disaster is about to happen. The whole book. <laughs> yes, yes. The whole book. Well, they get, they, as you point out in the book, the, the book that we're discussing to some extent here, uh, he always punishes people for taking risks or breaking Absolutely. and Okay, but, but you can't tell this kind of thing and, and see these kind of patterns and themes until you've read a fair amount of the book. 
Well, you know, it very much depends on the author. I mean, once you get your eye in with some authors, you can see pretty quickly. Okay. Certainly with, with Thomas Hardy, yeah, like right up front. With other writers, obviously, you know, like some writers, you can never quite figure out what's going on. Like uh, Faulkner's a writer who whose work I find, you know, has all kinds of, of he seems to position himself in all kinds of different places in relation to me, as if he wasn't really actually stable in 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 the position, yeah. and, and that can happen as well. And you know, every write every writer is different. It's not like, for example, take winning and losing. Joyce clearly wanted everybody to think of him as the great genius. Yeah, right? yeah. But there are other writers who are who who are writing about about those kinds of feelings like Alice Munro who clearly don't want don't want on the contrary they want to step back from that and say no I you know I I'm I'm quite happy with this position I've got you know and, and so on so well there's also um, a suggestion that being a friendly kind of narrator someone that that is is not really a good good person, but uh, is entertaining you and bringing you in on not a, maybe a joke or, but it's just sort of friendly with you. This is what you really want. You want the reader to be on your side. Well, it's what you want. You just said that's what you want, but a lot of a lot of writers don't want that. Well, this is what I... I mean, um, clearly Joyce didn't. Well, I'm trying to think of his name. I think it's Stephen Koch wrote a book about, uh, you know, about writing. And this is what he suggested was that that it's worthwhile for the author to establish a relationship, a positive relationship with the reader if they're writing an an essay, for example. you, You know... There are clearly all kinds of ways of dealing with the reader, and and there are all right. kinds of readers out there, you know. Some yeah, but you want to you want to make sure the reader keeps reading. You know, do you? I mean, does Finnegan's Wait really really oh, tell God, you no. those ones the reader keep reading? <laughs> I mean, you know, you're going insane like, with that one, yeah. No, no. I mean, I know I'm going to extremes, but there are also other writers. You think of Pasolini, think of Pavese. These are writers who are different. Definitely making it hard for you and definitely saying, look, you can come along with me if you want to. Right. I'm not going to go towards you. And they know that there are some some readers who like that. But they're not saying it because of that. They're saying it because that's the kind of people they are. Listen, if you read any biography of Joyce, okay, what was the classic relationship he had with people? The first time you met him, he would invariably ask you to do something for him. Well, he was poor. He couldn't. He couldn't make a, a nickel for the life of him. Well, he didn't try. Well, no, he was always kind of bugging people to give him money. Right. He would ask you to lend him money. He would ask you to take something to the post office. He would ask you to read a book for him or to read some proofs for him. Okay. If once you did it, he would ask you to do something else, and then he would ask you to do something else. And then something else and something else. Same with his women. Same with his women. And then it would reach a point where you would say, enough's enough. You're a genius, but I've had enough. And at that point, he would say, you never loved me. Yeah, yeah, you're not proving. proving. If you look at the trajectory of the books, each book 
inside the book gets more difficult. Like, right. you know, you go from the beginning of, of Dubliners to the dead, which is much more difficult. And then you go from the beginning of, of, of a portrait of an artist to the end, which is beginning to get difficult. The beginning of Ulysses to the end is incredibly difficult. And Finnegan's Wake is all impossible. You know, and Ezra Pound, So what are you saying? Are and you even, saying that, even Ezra Pound said to Joyce, enough is enough. I've had enough. Are, are you saying then that in, in, in order to read well, you need to know the biography of the author? Is that what you're no, saying? No, I'm not saying that. Although the biography of the author is interesting context, you know. Yes. Like once you know certain things about an author, it's impossible to forget them. It's true. It's like he, he the first time that he met his wife, she gave him a hand job. Stuff well, like yeah, that. Man. He would also do stuff like invite his wife to have an affair with somebody else. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, this sure. is the and whole jealousy. Then, you know, if she'd done it, God knows what would have happened. I mean, at the end, <laughs> Nora wanted at the end, Nora wanted to leave him, but unfortunately, Nora had nowhere to go. Let's not get too too fascinated too fascinated by that. No, I'm not I'm not saying you need to know that. I'm just saying that if you're an alert reader, you should be aware of what you're being drawn into. Yes, okay. You know. Like if um, you're reading honestly, if you're reading Thomas Hardy, yeah, Thomas Hardy, Hardy, you get, Thomas you know, Hardy in Jude the Obscure is writing a book where an upwardly mobile, sensitive working class man who wants to become, uh, you know, more of an intellectual, more and more uh, okay, and uh, uh, and wants to have a stable relationship with a woman, ends up in a situation. Where, where one of his children kills the other two children and himself. Now that is a that when you read those pages the first time, I can't think of, you know, I've read a lot of literature with all kinds of grotesque stuff in it, but I've never read a scene that blew me away like that one did. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, you know, I mean, if people want to put warnings on books. You know, which I would never want to do. But if they do, Judy Obscure should have the biggest warning on it. You know, so you can say, my God, you know, this. what's this guy telling me that it's that that I should never take a risk in life? Because you're always going to get And money. then you look at Thomas Hardy's own life and you realize that there were all kinds of things he wanted to do. And that every time he was just about to do them, he would smack himself on the hands so that he didn't do it, you know? So... You don't want to make a system out of this, but inevitably books have to do with people's lives. You know, we're alive, we write. And, and if we're a serious writer, not, you know, not kind of trying to churn out, I, I don't know, some particular kind of genre uh, to make ends meet at the end of the day. But if we're really trying to get a grip on life, we're obviously doing it from our point of view. And that's obviously going to in intersect with a particular kind of reader. I mean, a particular kind of reader is going to like Joyce and a particular kind of reader is going to like Thomas Hardy, you know. Like, one of the things that's amazing about Thomas Hardy is how attractive he makes life. Nobody can describe women, dancing, countryside, beauty, as well as Thomas Hardy. Nobody can make Tim Parks read a description of two pages like Thomas Hardy because it is unbelievably lush and beautiful he makes life so exciting you want to get in there and then he smacks you very hard for having got in there or tessa the d'urbervilles of course we know how she ends up no i just find it fascinating this is the kind of stuff that 
I look for and enjoy looking for. I enjoy using the book then to think, okay, so, you know, what's my position in relation to this, you know? Yeah, so, so uh, self, is it, is it about self-knowledge? I mean, is this what the ultimate goal of reading is then? Well, no, again, let me see, you know, you can use reading any way you want. You know, it's not. No, like, I, I know. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell people what they should do. No, I know you're not. If they want to just, W. H. Auden said he loved reading detective novels because it was it was a great form of anesthesia because yes. it didn't make him think about about anything. So if right. you want to do that, I can't see what's wrong with that. I mean, there are a million. No, but I, I want this to be a. How I'm just too, saying that. Yeah, I'm just. <laughs> if you are interested. Not in just reinforcing whatever political, political or social or moral point of view you you might have. If you're sort of genuinely interested in trying to understand who am I in this world, which is pretty much the same question as what is my position in relation to a lot of things, then this is not a bad way of looking at books, you know. Okay. Now you do talk about translation quite a bit in the book, and you make an interesting point that the reading of uh, foreign books and the translation of them tend to skew toward conventional interpretations, and that's what readers tend to do. They'll you use an interesting example of uh, D. H. Lawrence. And the translator uses the word but, and Lawrence doesn't use the word but. Yeah, no, I can, I can fill you in on that, if you like. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, does that inform our conversation about... I think it does. I think it how does. To, how to read. No, no, I think, I think actually it's a good moment to, to look at that. Yeah, um, okay. I mean, a translator is a reader, right? Yeah, well, it's a very good, is a very close reader. And they're also putting, this is what I think is interesting about being a reader, is you often want to take an interesting idea and put it into your own words. That way you'll really kind of own it. Yeah, he's a, he's a reader who has to possess the text and uh, reconstruct it for somebody else. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. And that's what you do in conversation. At, at, at a kind of base level, you can imagine a situation where you have a uh, foreign friend who, uh, I don't know, he doesn't read English very well, but he can talk. So you've read a book and you describe the book to him. Right. I mean, that right. way, it's not translation, but but it's like, so this is my reading of the book. OK. Now, yeah. obviously, none of us would trust anybody to read Shakespeare for them. We want to read it ourselves, you know? Right? I mean... Well, you, you can get the storyline from someone. Yeah, right? you could get... There's well, the, yeah, well, even the storyline, you know? But, yeah. of course, it's very interesting to hear other people's opinions because then yes. when we... Or other people's versions, because then when we read the story, we might say, yes. hey, that that is the same, but actually doesn't feel quite the same as the way he explained it to me, right? So the translator is somebody who reads the book and recreates it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so translators, it seems to me, have a kind of duty to be super prepared. Remember yeah. that most translators are not native speakers of the language that they translate from. They're not necessarily the best readers of those books. I mean, yeah. I translate into English, but I'm not Italian. Right. I've lived a long time in Italy. I speak, I hope, good Italian. 
I read very easily in Italian. But the language isn't this quite the same thing to me as it is for my wife, you know? So anyway, the translator's reading the book, okay? And I taught translation for many years to yes. students. And I would yeah. have a class of students and they'd read a sentence. Uh, and maybe this sentence has something in it which is not, as it were, standard behavior or not politically correct or not. Yeah. They'll slightly change it. They're not changing it because they're censoring it. They mm. actually have read it that way. So, for example, the case that I the case that I quote in the book is a translation from the beginning, a sentence, the beginning of the Women in Love, where the two girls are talking about their their problems of getting married, and it says the two girls laughed in their hearts; they were afraid. Okay. That's the translation. No, no, that's that's the Lawrence. The two girls. No, laugh. no, that's not the Lawrence. Lawrence no. is fright. He says he uses the word fright, frightened, or frightened. Okay, frightened. The yeah. two, I can't remember the. But he basically says the two girls laughed in their hearts. They were frightened. Okay, or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And the translation says, "But in their hearts." Exactly. The point is that the translator has decided, or he just feels that laughing and being afraid are somehow averse to each other. Yes. So I yeah. have to introduce the aversive. But actually, Lawrence is saying, when you're afraid, you laugh and pretend you're not. Yeah. And that nothing is more normal than laughing when you're afraid. Okay. So one of the problems with translation is, is that there is, apart from the, the whole linguistic problem, there's also the question of, you know, how sensitive the reader is to what the writer's actually doing. You know, for example, a lot of Italian translations of D.H. Lawrence, they will introduce some slightly religious concept when he's not being religious. Lawrence is great at using uh, strangely portentous formulations so that the reader knows that something tremendously serious is happening, but doesn't really quite understand. For example, when, uh, when Gertrude in Women in Love falls in love with Gerald... Okay, like she's looking at Gerald's, I don't know, is when he's swimming in the water or something, and she's thinking what an amazing guy he is and how dangerous he is and how, you know. And, and she's also getting very worried because she's very scared of falling in love because she doesn't want to be dominated by a man and, and she's in a whole competitive thing. And it says, it says the world, I don't know, the world, disappeared into nothing or the world spun into nothing. He was the final approximation of life to her. He was the final approximation of life. To her. And you think, what the hell does that mean, right? <laughs> but, I mean, approximation meaning getting close to, but obviously not close enough, the final approximation of life. How does the Italian translator translate it? He translates it as he was the supreme offer that life gave her. As if there was something like creative and religious, you know, and that this yeah. is all positive. Yeah. Whereas yeah. In, in Lawrence, it's not positive. But let me give you another example, because, you know, we've been talking mainly about male writers. So let's talk about let's talk about Virginia. Virginia Woolf. Woolf. I think you, you got Woolf in there. Yeah. Virginia Woolf is another writer who's very much like Dickens involved with belonging you know like when you have a writer who starts a book Mrs Dalloway 
which is all about somebody who is throwing a party and going to invite everybody. And she's actually removing the doors in a house, in the inside of the house, so that everybody can move freely between the different rooms. You've clearly got a writer who's interested in inclusion and belonging, right? But you've also got a writer who's terrified of, of being absorbed into the crowd. So she's always retreating into her room like a nun and being on her own. And she oscillates between being on her own and not being on her own, okay? Right. Anyway, at the beginning, at the beginning, the, the first paragraph, is a very famous, uh, I, I don't know, Clarissa was going to buy the flowers. The, the paragraph ends, uh, that the day was wonderfully fresh, as if issued to children on a beach. So the day was fresh, as if issued to children on a beach. What on earth does that mean? I mean, who issues things like army, yeah. I don't know, or newspapers or... You know, these were my army issue boots or... So the word issue occurs frequently in, in Mrs. Dalloway as some kind of like water issuing from a, from a hole or blood issuing from a wound. It's like life coming out. But the Italian translates that as if created for children on a beach. And again, you've got this slightly religious thing coming in instead yeah. of just the idea of life. So... With, with translation, there are all kinds of problems that are inevitable because because languages are different and, and because writers have their styles and so on. But then there's also the problem of of where the translator is coming from and how, ca yeah. how capable they are of reading the book, frankly. Well, does, let's tie this back then to our, our theme of how to read well. What you're saying is you just have to pay a huge amount of attention to every word. Is that... Well, I'm translating you. Again, no, but if you're if you're reading, if you we're speaking to the reader here, so uh, every yeah, single... but you're being you're being constantly prescriptive. Like you're taking I'm what trying. I'm saying. You're taking no, that's, what I'm it's saying. My saying, it's my show. It's my show. So you have to I'm... do this. You can do what you want. <laughs> you can do what you want. There are times when I read books very lazily. I think I know, you're, you're not moving, you're not going in with my, 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 I'm the writer here. Yeah, no, then listen, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, the more you're willing to uh, bring your life to the book and bring all your attention to the book, if it's a good book, the more you're yes. going to get out of it. If it's yes, a bad okay. book, you're going to be bored to death and and chuck it away. You know. Well, um, I think I think it's it is really good advice to if you're reading something, then to to put it in your own words so that you can then because this is another reason that people would would read is to, so they've got something to talk about. They've got you know they can have interesting conversations. That's I mean, I'm getting into why read here as opposed to how read. But it seems to me that putting what you've read into your own words is a very good way of reading. Well, it's a very good way of, of making reading part of your life. So yeah. like one of the great things about teaching is that you've actually got a bunch of people who have forced to read the same damn book <laughs> yeah, or right. the same passage. So yeah. we've genuinely got something to talk about. And yeah. try, I, let the, I let the kids talk and then I'll say, you know, 
please observe the way you're reacting to this book is also a way of understanding each other, not like we don't have to prove that the book really means this or that. No. Clearly, so, some interpretations are going to be closer to the mark than others. But but it's also very useful for understanding where you're at, you know. And, right, and, right. Um, you know, and it's also very interesting when one, when one student will say, oh, look, you think this about the book, but look at this sentence here, which makes it impossible to think this thing about the book. And they're right. You know, and the other one has to say, well, yeah, maybe I didn't really read that. So, OK, so why didn't you read that? You know, and, and so on and so forth. So the point is that that books are good books. And, and there are an awful lot of books that are rather dull out there. Books that are really intense with a lot of material in it. Just like offer you all kinds of opportunities for, uh, you know, entertainment, growth, uh, self-awareness, if you want to use them. And if yeah. you have the good luck to uh, live with somebody or to go to some club or something where people read the same books, then, you know, you have a sort of neutral territory that is fortunately is not like Brexit or, you know, or the Me Too movement, something you can actually talk about without arguing yes, uh, yes where we can establish our positions about stuff you know this is why i find that shakespeare so wonderful and, and that is because you pretty well have to examine every single line there's so much to sort of interpret in each line there's a lot going on in shakespeare yeah there's a they're, they're very busy intense texts but you can also step back a little from them and look at the trajectory of the plots. Look at something like The Tempest, right? What What's The Tempest about? We've got a guy on an island uh, who's been chucked out of his country, okay? No. He was the boss. He was the boss. But he spent too much time reading books. And here he is with his daughter. Now, he's a bit of a tyrant. He bosses his daughter around all the time. Right. He crosses the spirits of the island around. He has a little, he has a slave called Caliban who he bosses around all the time. And he basically takes control of the world, forces another ship to come to his island, puts everybody under a spell, <laughs> you know, and, and he uses art for power uh, and control. But at the same time, fortunately... He seems aware that nothing is more dangerous than doing this. Okay, that that if he exercises that control to the point of actually punishing the people who expelled him from in, in the end, that, that it will end badly. And so he steps back from his power at the end and says, okay, and now I renounce my power. I renounce my magic books. I'm going to trust you guys not to do this again, basically, uh, now that I've shown, you know. So the book is immensely about power. And if you look at the relationship between, what is it, Miranda and what's his name, Ferdinand? Is it Ferdinand who she falls in love with? But she says to him, I put myself in your power. And he says to her, I put myself in your power. So love is about power too, you know. So the whole thing is about power and and how to use it and the relationship between art and power and then when you go into the details yes. you can see how shakespeare then puts in the tempest some of his most 
some of his most seductive poetry just to show us how powerful, you know, how powerful poetry can be. You're getting back to your point then about uh, about thinking hard about the well, overarching themes and that will help you to uh, decipher the details. Absolutely. I mean, well, but, but, but there should be a, a constant exchange between these things, you know. Yeah. Remember, Shakespeare himself was just about to renounce his art. At the end of the play, he actually allows Prospero who's so far been a character, to refer to the public as if he himself was Shakespeare. And then he says, you have to release me. Like I'm in your power. It looked like I was the boss because I was writing the play. But actually, a guy to write a play needs an audience to watch a play. And, you know, the writer knows that the person paying the bills is the reader. So, you know, he actually turns to the reader and says, please release me from your, from your power, you know? It's a wonderful thing, and it, and it is very, very largely in this case about power and political power, artistic power, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, obviously, if you were translating that, the more you're aware of what's going on in the play, the better you're going to pick up the allusions to stuff, you know? So what you're saying is that a, a good reader really needs to prepare themselves to read a good text? Well, you know, do you really think I want to tell you that? <laughs> I, I don't know. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> well, let me say this. No, you don't have to do that. Because if you did that... There's extra know, reading. You know, there's a very funny, there's a very funny <laughs> essay by Nabokov about translating <laughs> Pushkin. Well, he basically says that in order to translate Pushkin, you'd need a whole lifetime of preparation and stuff. So, no, the answer is no. We read stuff badly, yeah. and then we read it again a few years later, maybe a little better, if yeah. we're still interested. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are some books that if we're not prepared enough, they will just seem dull from, from page one, and we may never go back to them. For example, you know, if I pick up some uh, 14th century Italian poetry, you know, I better be ready for it. I better know what the context is. I better be linguistically able to deal with it. Otherwise, I'm just going to say, you know, not. Yeah. One yeah. of the problems today, in the last sort of 30, 40 years, is there's this growing feeling that the, in, the individual is already complete and sovereign. You know, he, he knows everything. He's right about everything. Um, so if, the book, if I don't like the book, uh, it's, it's a problem with the book, you know. And that yeah. might be the case, you know, that of course, you know, there are a lot of books, I, but it might not, you know, and you might want to say, well, maybe this is, this is like one of those times when you meet somebody and you don't really know where they're coming from, you know, think about, think about relationships. You start going out with a new woman or a, a woman with a guy or, or all the other possibilities that sure. we have. Yeah, on the spectrum. Okay, so. You've got a new relationship and everything's going hunky-dory. And then, I don't know, you meet a friend or you meet your mother. And this person comes out with something that you really didn't expect. Like you think, God, that was our left field. I mean, I think we've all had that experience, no? You're in love with somebody. Everything's nice. You meet somebody else and they say something you never thought they would say, right? <laughs> so then you realize, then you have to think about Who that. the hell are they? You have to say, actually, this person, this, you know, there's a whole area here that I don't know about. This person yeah. comes from a world, you know, so I've only read this person partially. 
You know, there's stuff yes. going on here I, I don't know about. I, but on the other hand, isn't that exciting? Wouldn't it be dull if they always said exactly what they were supposed So when you're reading a book and suddenly you think, no, he's not going to do that. Or, my God, he's killed her off on page 10, you know, or <laughs> something like that. You know, yeah. you, just think, you just think, am I going to go on it? Well, maybe, maybe this is actually more interesting, you know. Yes. Maybe it isn't, but maybe it is. So. Okay, what about reading is about asking the right questions in the right order and then seeking answers? What about that? Again, right, you know, it's about asking. I think it's about asking the questions you want to ask, right? Right. But, you know, there is no perfect reader. But one of the good things about reading is precisely that you can learn how to read better and better and better. Right. Older. This and is one, why I'm talking to you, Tim. Right. And one of the pleasures of being older is, is that you feel that you've gathered enough experience that when you come to the book, the book is more than it was when you were younger. You know, yeah. you're just yeah. bringing more to it. Because if the book only exists when the reader opens it, it exists more when the reader brings more to it. You know, you know what you're saying is that the key here is just to get older. That's how, <laughs> that's how you become a better reader. Well, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, but you know, we know that you can get old just just reading reading. <laughs> I, I don't know um, three million detective novels. Or, <laughs> right. or, or, no, but you get your heart broken a few times, and a few right, yeah, no, but yeah, sure, sure, of course. You know, somebody who's been. Somebody who's been through a few marriages and suffered or, or, or just being or, or just suffering in one marriage or, or anything is going to read Anna Karenina differently from a 16 year old. You know, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's obvious. It's no, a no brainer. We don't but, want to go there. We don't want to go there because that's you know, too obvious. Go back to something like Borges. Borges in his essays. And let me say, if you want to read Borges, you know, the fictionis are fun, but forget them. Read the essays. The essays are beyond brilliant, just mm -hmm. beyond brilliant. And and Borges says, basically, I'm not a writer. I'm a reader. And when you read Borges' essays, you, you see what he means. This guy really knows how to read a book. Um, okay, so what does he say? Well, he says all kinds of things. I mean, read him, read him on Joyce. No, no, no. He, oh, takes, oh, yeah. he takes Joyce to pieces with a... With a brilliance that that is, I mean, you know, he actually says about about Joyce. He has a wonderful one. He has like three essays on Joyce, but one of them is particularly wonderful. He imagines this guy who is born with an extraordinary capacity to remember everything constantly, right? Yeah. And then he imagines this guy falling ill at age ten and reading hundreds of books and remembering. All of them, and absolutely, and he can put everything in relationship with everything in the whole history of the universe. And then he says, "Why did I invent this character? Because it seems to me that this is the only person who will be able to read James Joyce." <laughs> you know, as if to say, Joyce's books require this reader. He's a wonderful reader, and uh, yeah. I also quite a generous, quite a generous reader in his way too. He, he understands the pleasures, even of the things that maybe he doesn't like that much. 
So uh, he's great fun. The only, I wouldn't be prescriptive. One, no, no, I'm not, one, I'm not trying to be, I'm just trying, listen, when someone. Okay, I'm going to, no, I'm going to be prescriptive. When someone tunes into a podcast, they want to learn something. That's what I'm trying to get at here. Okay. So, okay, give the so listener, I'm going to be prescriptive now. I'm going to awesome. say Awesome. I'm going to say that I feel that, that if you want Finally. to, if you want to really make use of literature, make use of, in the sense of enjoy the way it can help you to to live more intensely, to be more aware. And so, if you want to do that, when you come to literature, leave your own political, moral, whatever views. Just leave them aside. For, don't abandon them. Like nobody's gonna. Don't abandon them, but but don't just react to the book. You know. Oh my God, this guy described a woman like this. He must be misogynist. I'm not going to use, use read this book. Or racist. Oh, yeah. This guy did this. Or you know, when I was preparing to uh, write this review on this Spanish writer Sela, I read various re reviews of the book. I don't normally do that, but I did that in this case because, because I really don't know a great deal about Spanish literature, and I wanted to see where other, where other serious reviewers were coming from as far as the Spanish literature was concerned. Yeah. You know, so I find one guy, I'm not going to say who it was or what paper it was in, who's just taking the view, you know, well, Sela, we know that he fought in the Spanish Civil War on Franco's side, that is on the nationalist side, the fascist side. And really, from that point, you can see that he just doesn't like this author and he's not going to like this book. And um, uh, and he says a lot of things about the book that are really ungenerous, I think. And they've got nothing to do with, with you know, nationalist politics or not and, and whatever we think about that. Frankly... Obviously, your eyebrows raise when you when you read that somebody's uh, fighting on the fascist side, and then you know, well, the guy was twenty years old, and he was yeah. in that part of the country, wherever you know, and and so on and so forth. And then yeah. you know, we remember the other side was was communist, and we remember that that some of the stuff going on uh, in, in the Soviet Union, etc., was not etc. etc. What all I'm saying is, don't come to the book. Don't come to the book like that. Like my parents, I grew up in an evangelical family. Yes, yes. You know, I grew up in an evangelical family. I'm opening a book. Like I'm reading Beckett when I'm 16, 17. And my parents kind of pick up the book. Oh, no, you can't read that. And it's, obvi it's obviously nihilist. Obviously, you know, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a good book. You know, trust me to read it. Trust me yeah. to read it. Let me let me come to it. What like, you just said is that, that readers should be should be generous and should be what? Empathetic and open? Well, and, no, let's uh, leave empathy. If there's one word I hate, it's empathy. Yeah, okay, well, let's take that I'm not, You shouldn't be a pushover either. I'm not saying you've got to be a pushover for this guy. I'm just saying, give it a chance, you know. Yeah. Writers okay. are trying to seduce you. So you want to offer a tiny bit of resistance to that. But it's not the resistance... It's not the resistance of, of somebody who just has a completely sclerotic vision that this has to be this and that has to be that. No, it's just like, okay, well, what's this guy trying to do? You know, imagine you're reading Thomas Bernhard. You, you've read Thomas Bernhard. You also yeah, read Thomas Bernhard. Illusion. And, you know, this guy's trying to steamroll you with these fantastically eloquent, long, 
obsessive sentences. <laughs> Wait a minute, you know, because mm. this, this guy could convince me of God knows what, right? But Are you sounding like Plato there? You know, this the fear of the poets, the power. You should of... always be a little, I mean, Plato was not a stupid guy. So you should always be a little afraid of poets. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, what I mean is, like when I said a meeting between a reader and a book is a meeting between two people, a reader and a writer. Yeah, it's a conversation. So, yeah, but and so you've got the same dangers that you've got in every conversation. Like yeah. when you meet somebody, you Give want them a chance. To be, you want to be generous, you want to be open, but at the same time, people can be dangerous. <laughs> but that's what makes it exciting, isn't it? Isn't yeah. that what makes it exciting? Uh, fortunately, a writer like Bernhard, a lot of his writing is actually about the dangers of being seduced by somebody like himself. You know, right, it's actually right. about the dangers, like in his plots, people get crushed by other people who are who are so eloquent and you know powerful the plot itself starts to say to you wait a minute i might be being drawn into this in a certain way but i'm being told this is maybe a relationship i should be thinking about you know so so again you're saying that reading a book is like conversing and reading another person yeah bring bring you don't think i'm just sitting down after dinner Right. You know, well, maybe you are, and that's all right too. But it, it can be can be a little a little dangerous, you know. Uh, okay. Um, so again, someone's listening to this podcast. They want Tim to get to the the other. Okay, I'll give you another prescriptive thing. Yeah. Behind the title, like the other book that I did, which is another collection of the same kind of pieces, it's called right. Pen in Hand, right? And I was asked to give a piece of advice about reading, right? So what did I say? That's what I said to always said to my students: read with your pen in your hand. Yeah, I can't. Why, not now, read. why? Why? Do pencil. You pencil. Because not it. Because pencil. it makes you proactive. Because you are not just a passive person in this conversation. Yeah. You have this pen, which is like a harpoon or, or like a knife. You know, you can dash into the text and say, that's garbage. Or you can say, that's wonderful. Or, you know, and then you can go back years later and read what you wrote and say, my God, yes. where was I coming yes. from at the time when I wrote that? Why didn't I see that this was wonderful? Or why didn't I see that this was awful? Right. Well, here's Mortimer. Here's Mortimer. He says the best way to make uh, yourself part of a book is by writing in it. Excellent. Yeah, I hadn't read that, but that's exactly my position. Yeah. 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 So, you know, so that you take up a real relationship with the book um, and you're lively. You want to be lively when you're reading. Right. Yes. You want yes. to be awake when you're reading. And, you know, one thing that happens when you do that is that you learn very quickly which books you don't want to bother reading to the end. Right, right. right. And I suppose, again, it's like if you're at a party and someone's droning on about the <laughs> You move to somebody else, right? You do. You, you, you want to get someone who's a sparkly and is, is going to think about you yeah, a little right. bit. Yeah, or, or they can also not be sparkly. They could be quiet and or, Yeah, or interested in you. Or, rather than themselves right or tell you a you know tell you a good story but in a calm i mean there are all kinds of ways of being interesting sure but um <laughs> you know sometimes i'm sometimes I, uh, uh, i'm having to read a book 
you, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm reading a friend's book or I'm reading, reading something. And you, you just think, you know, I'm going to have to read to the end of this book, but yeah. I'm really not getting much out of it. And so you'll start, I start skipping. You know? oh, yeah, I'm, well, I'm, yes, and you do I'm have a piece skipping. on that. It's up to you to decide what your engagement yes. is. And, yeah, I mean, and also, unless you have to write a review or unless you have to uh, to translate it. Sure. But let me say this. My destiny as a reader, since yes. I was about 32, 33 years old, is that I have probably read about 80% of what I've read. I have read because I was writing an essay about it or I was going to teach it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Most of my reading has been framed professionally. Now, does this make it a bore and less interesting? No, this has made it infinitely more interesting. Right. To me. And now when I do get a break and there's a book that I'm not going to be reviewing, okay, I'm looking at it. I just say, no, I'm going to read this book as if I was going to review it because I read it better. I bring more. There we have it. There's, there's the... You know, so maybe... Try reading a book as if you were going to review it. That's beautiful. I love that. Not as if you were going to review it to show off in some blog or something. But if you were going to review it as a duty to be fair to the writer and fair to the person reading your review, you know. Because if there's one kind of review that's loathsome, it's a review with an agenda or a review who just wants to yeah. smile. I mean, well, that kind just, of reviewing is just stinks. Well, and uh, yes, as you've said, it's uh, it's it's basically coming to the book with a closed mind. Or just not not even coming to the book at all sometimes, but just glancing through it and giving it a drive-by shooting, you know, or something like that. Yeah. Or alternatively, a drive-by puff, which is which is just as bad, you know. Yeah. Fortunately, there's a lot of that partly because reviewing is not very well paid, you know. That's I mean, I'm. Problem. I mean, I'm fortunate. I write. Yeah, you know, I've been lucky to write for the New York Review of Books, the London Review of Books, who, who pay a reasonable amount of money. But some yeah. of the publications pay so little that you wonder how people can afford to review for them. What about this one? Just winding down here. Uh, focus on questions you want answered. What about that? I don't really understand that. Well, I guess I'm, it's not, I'm not expecting a book to answer a question for me, am I? Yeah, you are. You're, I mean, that's the whole reason you read a book is to find out, you know, answers to the questions you have. Yeah, but I don't go to a specific book. Like, yeah, I don't open, uh, I, I don't know, Dead Souls thinking, I hope this book's going to tell me about the afterlife or something. You know. No, but you want to know what's going on with this Dead Soul business. Yeah, okay. So so then I'll but, but and it is a and it is a business. Is it, it is a business. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't I don't know. I don't expect I certainly don't expect writers to tell me how to live. Uh, right. most of them don't know how to live at all. Uh, <laughs> I do expect to learn from them about living, but yeah. you know, they're not self-help books, they're not gonna give me prescriptions about how to do stuff. Right. I mean, Thomas Hardy isn't giving you a prescription about it. He's, he's telling you what it is like to live in a mindset where life is terribly exciting and terribly dangerous. You know? Yeah. That's what he's telling you. And then you can say, okay, so where am I in that? Well, yes. Wonderful. You know, let me, let me advise that there is a wonderful 
a little book by D.H. Uh, Lawrence, which is called, it's called something like D.H. Lawrence on Thomas Hardy or something like that. Anyway, okay. you don't have to read the book. You can find extracts from it. Right. It's fantastic watching D.H. Lawrence read Thomas Hardy. Because D.H. Lawrence lived in exactly the same mindset that life was incredibly exciting. Yeah. But he was determined to overcome the fear of dealing with it. Like that you had to plunge yourself into it. You had to take risks, come what may. So he gets really angry with Thomas Hardy. Like he thinks Thomas Hardy is a fantastic author. Yeah. Nobody reads Thomas Hardy better than D.H. Lawrence because they, they very much had the same visions of sexuality and, and yeah. landscape and engagement and stuff. Lawrence saying, no, Thomas Hardy's cheating here. This really wouldn't have, he's making it all seem more, de- you know, yeah well he's also sending off the wrong message setting them up you know it's, yeah. and you can see lawrence is really engaging with the material you know yeah yeah and, yeah. and you think well you know that's a way to read you can see he's reading with his pen he's the thing about lawrence just maybe just to close on this lawrence is a writer who's in an argument with you when you read lawrence he, he doesn't want you to agree with him he knows you're going to disagree with because he wants an art because he thinks that arguing with people is li- is really living. Well, obviously you do too, Jim, because I have, well, you know. To a degree, to a degree. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly attracted to Lawrence's position. Lawrence was writing Lady Chatterley's Lover, right? He writes to a friend, this is amazing. They're really going to hate this. There's going to be so <laughs> yes. much trouble. And when he would write a book, yeah. when he'd finish it, he would start imagining the bad reviews he would get. <laughs> and he would start writing the replies to the bad reviews before he died. You know, that's the relationship where you're in with D.H. Lawrence. So when you're yeah. reading D.H. Lawrence and you think, this guy's a nutcase, or no, this guy's a misogynist, I was like, that's exactly what he wants, you know. Uh, and well, because, he, because he's so good, you keep reading anyway. Yeah. Well, again, he's he's engaged, as you said, and this is a this is a key to to good reading. Then is to be engaged, right? And and the point is, it's going to depend how you engage with people. You know, obviously, D.H. Lawrence reading Thomas Hardy is not James Joyce reading Thomas Hardy. You know, this is one reason why creative writing courses for me seem to be a problem. Like, imagine being being taught creative writing by somebody like like D.H. Lawrence. I mean, you know, he's going to teach you something totally different from what, uh, I don't know, what Virginia Woolf or, or Dickens is going to teach you or something. Actually, D.H. Lawrence wonderfully said, you, you can't teach anybody to write anything except what's already been written. Is he, he was very much against that, that kind of thing. So I've said a lot. Yes, you did. Probably you- enough. You basically didn't give me a chance to say much of anything. <laughs> but that's okay, because you, uh, oh, you're sorry, the guest yeah. on the show, and we got some great advice, and uh, that makes me very happy. And uh, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for pontificating so articulately and uh, forcefully. Well, let me let me just say, uh, as a form of saying goodbye, that what happens to me is that after any conversation like this, I immediately feel guilty for having talked too much.
Yeah, I well, I've already, yeah, we've already from grown. my evangelical background, like every engagement for me, I'll get very engaged in it, and then I step back and think, I'm guilty. I shouldn't have done that. You know? No, no, you know what? I I don't mind. Like it, there's a sense of not, not conflict, but I wanted to get a word in edgewise, and I couldn't. But I I just what's what I want is to make this interesting for the listener, and I think I think. I think it was so, uh, but just finally, you mentioned evangelicals, your parents. It's just just as an as, an, an observation. So James Wood had to deal with the same sort of religious. I won't say fanaticism, but he had a very religious upbringing, and it's James interesting. Wood. Uh, yeah, I've been you know I've had I had correspondence with James. I think he was from a slightly more traditional church. Of yes, church, yeah, not right? evangelical. My father's church of England clergyman, but he was also doing exorcisms. And I think probably the difference, the difference is that he's very much, yeah, in, in that church situation. The situation I was in was probably a lot more coercive. Oh, like, yeah. You know, you really had to believe or you're going to go to hell. And, and it was like... Yeah. You know, a bit more like like situations one reads about in American evangelicalism. Yes, which, which yeah. we remember comes out of British Puritanism. So, and you can see why I say I'm not going to be prescriptive. No, no, I can see like, that because sure. I grew I grew up. We've had too much of that. Yeah, I grew up with people yeah. telling me what to believe. You know. Yeah. Well, thanks, uh, Tim. Thanks again. And what book? What book can we end off with? Like, what? What do you want people to read of yours, aside from everything? Oh, I, I really don't. I really don't know. I've written different kinds of books. People can, people can pick and choose. Maybe the best novel is the novel called Destiny. But I mean, if people are really interested in this whole, whole reading yeah. thing, I wrote, I wrote a book, a little paperback that's published with Oxford University Press, which is called The Novel, A Survival Skill. Okay. Uh, and, and what I do in that is I look at a small number of novelists who everybody knows and suggest the way they're using the novel to survive in, in their, you know, in their own lives and, and, and how that helps you to read them, maybe. That's a great uh, recommendation. And that's the way that uh, our listeners can continue to have a conversation with you. Excellent. So, thanks again for your time, Tim Parks. You, and how do you describe yourself now? I never describe myself now. Jeez. Oh, okay, what? there's a website. Let's plug your website then. I don't know. It says something like Tim Parks, novelist, essays, translator, whatever. You know, okay. I write novels, and that's my first love. I write essays, that's my second. And and I've done quite a few translations. And and, uh, and so I suppose that's there as the third. So there you go. And the website's very easy. It's timparks.com. So yeah. thanks again for your time. It's been really, really fun. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Take care. And you.